Hi, everybody. Exactly one week after we recorded our Captain Marvel review, we received the absolutely heartbreaking news about the passing of Chadwick Boseman, perhaps best known for playing T'Challa, the Black Panther, in the MCU at the age of 43 after a four-year and apparently very private battle with colon cancer. You'll get to hear that Captain Marvel review in its entirety later on in the podcast, but Emily and I wanted just to take some time to acknowledge the passing of this man who, in less than a decade, had already become an icon in just so many ways. And Emily, I mean, you remember just under a week ago now, we were chatting via FaceTime, and I guess, what happened? Did you... Were you reading it on Twitter? Or? Yeah, I saw it on Twitter. You know, sort of with the internet, you always want to double check things before you just go blurting out anything crazy. And so I looked through the trending tag and saw a couple of stories going through. Yeah, you blurted out like, oh my God, or something like that. And yeah, I like, that sounds what, right. What, what, you know, and especially this year when so much has been, oh my God worthy, it was kind of like, oh no, what now? And sure enough, more bad news. I mean, I, I went back just a couple days ago while everyone else was watching Black Panther again. Perfectly understandable. I just rewatched Black Panther fairly recently, so I decided to watch something that Chadwick Boseman was in that I hadn't seen before. And I put on Get On Up, his uh, James Brown biopic. Just mesmerizing. He was... James Brown. He had everything down. He had the voice. He had the dance moves. He had the attitude, the athleticism, just everything was working in that movie. And that's just kind of what, that's just kind of what he did. I mean, he was a performer, you know, like that's Mm -hmm. by far and away the most impressive aspect of him is his ability to perform and his sort of, his dedication to that as well to being a good actor being a good performer being a good presence sort of all around not just in acting but in his personhood as well have you seen anything that he's been in besides the marvel movies i have not no but i know you know from reading around like i know he went to howard i know his sort of connections within the world of acting like angela bassett and uh denzel washington and all that stuff all his really very interesting connections and us being dc based at howard is right down the street Mm -hmm. i think i read from angela bassett that when she got her honorary degree he was actually her student host oh i hadn't known that when he was there at howard so they already you know the connections were already running deep even when he was just in school yeah that and when they were honoring denzel washington at that afi american film institute thing that it was revealed that when Chadwick Boseman went to that acting seminar over in Oxford, he found out that it was Denzel Washington who had helped pay for his tuition. Right, yeah. A very touching story, of course. I think Chadwick, he was probably on his way to becoming the next Denzel Washington. In fact, I think he could have been better than Denzel Washington. And I make no mistake, I love Denzel Washington. I think he's one of the greatest actors of his generation. He's one of the best actors of our time. But I think Chadwick could have been even better than him. And it's just, you know, I think of everything that he was going to do and we're never going to see it. And that just that's just so sad. But at least in my case, we've got a not, not terribly large, but ever-present body of work of his that we can watch. You know, mm-hmm. I'm hoping to go see Marshall and Defy Bloods at some point. 42 was a really good film. I really enjoyed that. There's actually, there's an article in the New York Times. This was an article that came out August 29th, so just about three days ago. The title of the article itself speaks volumes. It says, it's hard to make dignity interesting. Chadwick Boseman found a way. And I think that's I think that's a very appropriate descriptor for this actor. He he just always had the characters he played is kind of had this presence of just being sort of maybe I don't know if stoic is the right word, but a sort of quiet inner strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see that in Jackie Robinson, of course. You see that in T'Challa. I'm assuming that Thurgood Marshall 
his his portrayal of Thurgood Marshall was very similar. And yeah, it can be kind of hard to make that enjoyable. And he just has a certain presence that he just kind of makes that strength very tangible and very palpable. That's a gift. Yeah, and I'm pretty terrible at trying to eulogize people. And I think especially when someone's sort of as famous and as well-known as Chadwick was is still. I think that's better left said to the people who knew him. There's a really good write-up from the director of Black Panther that sort of talked about his experience with Chadwick. And one thing that I do in these instances is think of ways to help other people in that might be in a similar situation or might not be, but might still be affected by those types of things. So I pulled together a list that I'll leave in the show notes as well of places to donate to. And if you can't donate given, you know, COVID and all the things that we're in of just to sort of spread awareness of these other things so i have a link to the colon cancer coalition and then i have a link to the aura lee smith cancer research foundation which is operated and founded by a female phd physicist and so she works on cancer research um, based on her experience and her family's experience of being African-American and dealing with the healthcare system. And then I also have a link for the Arts Administrators of Color Network, which helps teachers and educators um, that are African-American or Hispanic or Native American to help further fund arts initiatives in the U.S. Emily, thanks for gathering those links together and putting them in the show notes for us. Some really good stuff there, and we're hoping our listeners will take a look and contribute whatever they can, if they can. I lost my grandfather to colon cancer, my dad's oldest brother to colon cancer. So it's something I'm somewhat acutely aware of. The fact that he was diagnosed with stage three at such a young age, he was only 39 when that happened. That's, wow, that's all I can say. We have those links, we'll post them in the show notes. And thank you Chadwick for giving us a gift. And in fact, actually, he's not, he had finished doing the voiceover work for the Marvel What If miniseries that's supposed to debut on Disney Plus either next year or the year after. From what I've been told, he finished his voiceover work for that. So we will get to at least hear Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa one last time. So without further ado, here in its entirety is our review of Captain Marvel. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And we we can can do do this this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And it's another Friday night. You know what that means. It means we're back. How are you doing, Emily? Higher, further, faster! <laughs> Higher, further, faster! That is the mantra for the evening. That's how I'm doing, by the way. <laughs> this whole episode could just be me shouting higher, further, faster for 45 minutes, and I think it would get the same amount of engagement. You could do that for 45 minutes? I think I could. I've oh. got enough stamina. Well, maybe we can offer... I mean, I trust you. I know you can do that. But maybe we can offer a little more to the listeners. In case you haven't guessed already, we're going to be talking about Captain Marvel tonight, which is a much more recent film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Chronologically, it takes place after Captain America the First Avenger. It takes place in the year 1995, so we thought we would insert it in this slot right here. The film opened on March 8th, 2019 in the U.S., so just last year. It stars Brie Larson, Samuel L. Jackson, Jude Law, Ben Mendelsohn, 
Lashana Lynch and Annette Benning. Screenplay by Anna Bowden, Ryan Fleck, and Jennifer Robertson Dwarat. The film was directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who directed Half Nelson, co-starring Anthony Mackie. It's kind of a funny story, and a movie that I really want to see. I I've seen trailers and stuff. For it, but I've never actually seen it. Mississippi Grind, featuring Ryan Reynolds and Ben Mendelsohn. It looks like a really neat film. I just haven't had a chance to see it yet. This is the first Marvel film with a female director. This movie was made on a budget of somewhere between 152 and 175 million dollars. It grossed at the box office 1.128 billion. That's billion with a B dollars. It was a huge hit for Marvel. This is not two months before Endgame is about to debut, so I'm sure the suits over there were just salivating and chomping at the bit. If this movie was going to make that much money, imagine what their masterpiece was going to make. So to give you an idea what a big deal this film was. And you also uh, noted that it was the first Marvel film with a female director, and they recently, just a couple weeks ago, announced the director for the sequel, Nia DaCosta, who directed Candyman, which uh, was written by Jordan Peele and comes out in October in a couple months. And aside from that, she doesn't have a ton on her roster from what I could see when I looked up, but Marvel clearly sees something in her to sort of draft her for the sequel. And you personally know that I'm always down for a horror director. I love horror as a genre, and I think those directors have a lot to offer other genres like sci-fi and humor and things like that. I think they have a lot to offer. They're really able to diversify their skill sets in a lot of ways. It's funny you mention that because horror is a genre that, in terms of directors, the MCU has already dipped into. Guardians of the Galaxy director James Gunn started out as a horror director. Doctor Strange director Scott Derrickson started out as a horror director. So, not a huge stretch for Marvel, not a big surprise. Kind of like what we were talking about a couple weeks ago, Marvel really, once they got going and the films became really established, I think they felt licensed to take some chances with some not necessarily untried directors, but directors who, who didn't have a really big portfolio or who may not have done a really big budget film at that time. They're willing to take chances because they know, chances are, people are going to go see this movie regardless of who's directing it. But it's also an opportunity to bring in some really neat, fresh perspectives. So I think that's a fantastic thing what they're doing with Nia DaCosta. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Do you know anything about when the sequel's supposed to take place? Like, what time period in the universe? I've heard that it will be contemporary with whatever's going on in the MCU at that time. So, so it will definitely be post-Endgame. Okay. I think, you know, pretty much everything on the slate after Black Widow that we know about going to be post-Endgame. It will take place in the present day, but still too early to tell, and, you know, with COVID-19 delays, who knows what's going to happen. They keep telling us Black Widow is going to come out in November. We'll see if that actually happens. They may end up doing a Mulan with that one, although one of their tentpole movies, I can't quite see them making people watch it at home. My have theater, the one uh, down the street from me, still has outdated Black Widow posters for like May or whenever it was supposed to originally come out. They just haven't. Yeah. Because they haven't been open to change any of the posters, so all the dates mm -hmm. are old dates. Well, it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting. So we'll see if come November if that movie actually opens up in the theaters or they may do some combination of theater release and on-demand streaming, kind of like what they're doing with like Bill and Ted 3 or Mulan. We'll just have to see. So, Captain Marvel. What are we going to say about Captain Marvel? I looked at back of the, the Blu-ray and I was going to read their 
plot synopsis, and I decided, yeah, this is okay, but I figured I'd just write my own. In fact, I don't think I've ever told you, but one of my dream jobs, I wanted to be the person who wrote the blurbs on the back of DVD boxes. That's what I wanted to do for a living, so this is wish fulfillment for me right here. Because I don't know. <laughs> I just always thought that would be a really cool job. Here is my plot synopsis of Captain Marvel. Veers, a woman with some supernatural abilities and a bad case of amnesia is fighting for the Kree Star Force in a war against the Skrulls, shape-shifting aliens who, we've been told, are at war with the Kree. After a botched rescue mission, Veers is captured by the Skrulls, escapes, and crash lands on Earth. Pursued by both the Skrulls and the Kree Star Force, Veers teams up with Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., to uncover the truth about the Kree Skrull War, to unlock the secrets of her past, and to discover the true extent of her powers. So that's the movie in a nutshell. What are your overall impressions of the film? Well, I guess before we do that, I'll do again what I did last time, which is where would you rank this? So we sort of have our top five. We have where we would both put the first Captain America. Where in the list of 20 plus, 23, 24 movies would you uh, rank this one? I've really enjoyed this movie. I really enjoyed Captain Marvel. I would probably have it somewhere maybe between 15 and 10. That's just a guess. Uh, I, I really like the movie a lot. Maybe not enough to put it in my top 10, but my top 15, quite possibly. How that, about you? That's fair. Yeah. I actually, this is only the second time that I've seen this movie. I'm really? Pretty, I'm pretty sure, anyway. That I, I watched you... it in theaters, and I may have watched it once after that. I thought you'd rewatch it with your dad at some point. Oh, that is possible. Year. Yeah, because he doesn't go to the movie theater. I figured I figured you'd rewatched it with him, and he would have made some commentary about the planes. Okay, so maybe this is the third time. I don't remember the second time. Whenever. If that happened, it probably did, but I don't remember it. But I think I probably agree with you. I, it would be right on the verge, so it would either be like a 9 or a 10. I don't think I would give it a wide 10 to 15, but I would give it maybe like a 9 to 11. I think it's a solid middle movie. I agree. I tend to agree. Yeah. And I'm also like, I'm very much on board with sort of dismantling our dependency on a massive military presence, but... As previously stated, I have family history in aerospace and in the military. All the Air Force callbacks in this movie, the fighter jets, all that stuff sort of scratch that part of my brain that enjoys, you know, a good jet engine noise. It's the same as, you know, when people hear the lightsaber noise. The <laughs> it sort of scratches that lizard part of your brain. That's <laughs> what a fighter jet does for me. I think it's just That's... in my genes. Well, yeah, it's a very visceral, it's a visceral experience. You know, I've always told you why I like cars so much. It's, it's the sound, it's the, it's the noise of the engine. Same thing with planes in a lot of people. What do you think your dad would say about this movie? I know that he has seen it because I was texting with him while I was watching it for the episode. And I was talking about the movie and he goes, oh, I need to go back and watch it again. So I know that he does like it already. I think he always enjoys a smart, funny female lead. And so I think this movie is sort of right up his alley. You know, every character has sort of their own development, their own arc. He loves weird alien stuff. That's always a big plus with him. Because I know your dad's been up in fighter jets and stuff before, if I'm not mistaken. I yeah. think, I know Brie Larson, when she trained for, when she was preparing for the role, I know she went up on flights with, with real Air Force pilots to get ready. There are a couple of behind-the-scenes featurettes on the Blu-ray and the DVD where they show her going up. I mean, I'm sure that's that's got to be an awesome experience. I don't think I could handle that. You know, have six Gs pushing down on me, but you know, more power to her for going through all that. So we talked a little bit about aerospace technical, like sort of 
a broader scope of the movie. But this is a Marvel movie, of course, and Marvel, to me, at least in the cinematic universe, is sort of known for having a bunch of witty one-liner jokes and, you know, quick zingers, but this movie is so funny. Like, when I was watching it for the episode, I kept wanting to write down different jokes that I liked, that I thought were really good. I don't know You if did it's... in our show notes. <laughs> I did write a couple, <laughs> a few. Not all the ones that I wanted to write, but a few. And I don't know if it's that Samuel Jackson is getting more screen time in this movie outside of, you know, sort of a disaster situation, or if it's Brie Larson, but the jokes come so often, and they're not overwhelming, but they come so often, and they're pretty much always good. It's a funny cast. I think, you know, you talk about Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, one of the things that I think gives him an opportunity to shine, or at least shine in a different way, and we may talk about this more later, since this is a younger Nick Fury, this is 1995, he's much more buoyant and good-natured and a lot less serious than we see him in all the other Marvel movies. I'm assuming that's because he hasn't been jaded and by all the stuff that is yet to come, all of this, you know, end of the world, end of the universe stuff. So he's just kind of, hey, I'm Fury, and he can just kind of do his thing, and he's kind of somewhat blissfully unaware of what's going on in the universe obviously this is a big turning point for that in this film and mm -hmm. this kind of starts him on his journey to becoming more serious but i think it gives him an opportunity to cut up quite a bit Brie larson she's very funny she's got this she's got this quirky offbeat sense of humor i think that that i'd rather like i think she gets a chance to to show that quite a bit in this movie like on the one hand she's kind of this serious cree warrior but there's that smart alecky rebellious side to her that we perhaps the human side that's still trying to break out well um, even in the first little fight scene training skirmish with yonrog he tells her you know like humor is a defense mechanism so even though she's pretty serious you already know that she's gonna be the class clown sort of a jokester and that that's gonna come off in any relationship because if she can't keep her humor down with the guy who's supposed to train her like you think she's gonna not make jokes with everybody else and i think another thing about this movie that is a little different so it is you know the first movie directed by a female it's kind of the first it is the first like female-led movie that another thing that's a little different that's more about the i guess maybe the aesthetic of the movie is that when they're on earth it's set in the u.s south and so a lot of times the earth-based movies are new york and a little bit in la but this one they're in louisiana and then they're in you know a southwest desert style backdrop and so i really liked that it took us to a different part like a different time period and a different part of sort of the universe that we hadn't seen before you see a lot more rural earth in this movie than you do in a lot of the other marvel movies because the other ones like you say all take place either in new york or san francisco or some major city and while you still get you know, a bit, a good chunk of the beginning of the movie taking place in los angeles we get to go down to louisiana we get to go out into sort of the mountain, the mountain regions of Southern California. There are fewer people and lots of top secret shield bases. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the Marvel movies are shot in Atlanta anyway. So I guess this is sort of a nice acknowledgement that one of these movies that actually takes place in the South. I really like this movie because in a lot of ways, origin stories, especially superhero origin stories, they're a dime a dozen. And a lot of times you're trying to find a way to reinvent that genre. How can I 
introduce this hero in a way that's different from the way it's been done three gazillion other times before. And what separates this movie from a lot of the others, at the beginning of the movie, her origin, Carol's origin, has already happened. And the whole point of the movie is her trying to find out where she came from. She's trying to learn her own origin story. And so we get to go on that journey with her. We get to discover her origin with her and watch everything unfold and sort of we get to watch all the layers of the onion get peeled back as Carol is watching them get peeled back. And I think that makes for a really fun ride. I think one of the big themes, maybe even the overarching theme of this movie, the theme of overcoming limits and control. You don't belong out here. And she's got this overprotective father who probably sees her as just a girl with the boys try to do to her when she's growing up, telling her you can't do this, you can't do that. All the stuff those, those Air Force jerks are telling her during basic training and the limits on her powers that Jan Rog and the Kree are putting on her so that they can control her. The guy who tries to sweet talk her and she steals his motorcycle, which is a fantastic scene. You know, the montage near the end of her getting up after all the falls. I mean, that's who that's who Carol Danvers is. She's persistent and she takes licks, but she just keeps getting up and fighting back. That's that's the essence of Carol Danvers, and I think that's one of the over arching themes of this film. And I think it might have to do sort of with, at the beginning, she doesn't know who she is, but being a product of growing up in that time period, like, I think they did a good job of capturing what it would be like to be a woman coming of age in, like, the 80s and 90s. On the media and in music and entertainment, there was a lot of girl power and stand-up-for-yourself sort of stuff. And so I think not only was she probably already destined for that kind of life, but I think it plays off of what was happening sort of societally, sort of in the same way when we talked about Captain America in the last episode that even though it was, you know, we were talking about alien tech and Schmidt and things like this, we were still talking about what was going on in society at that time, in American society, and then in sort of society in the world as it was spanning oceans in the movie. When we were talking earlier about Brie Larson doing that training in these actual fighter planes going up with real Air Force pilots, one of the people who went through that process with her, I don't remember her name, unfortunately. She's a general on an Air Force base in Southern California. She was one of the first women to be allowed to fly a fighter plane in the late 80s, early 90s. I don't remember if women were flying in combat at this time. I think they were, but I'm not sure. But the fact that they even did that, they had one of these pioneers show her how to be one of those pioneers mm -hmm. was yeah, was cool. was brilliant that's a really neat touch let's talk about the scrolls they're let's obviously talk about the scrolls <laughs> they're obviously a huge part of this film i know on the internet and things like that the scrolls in this film they got a lot of flack from a lot of comic book purists because in the comics the scrolls are pretty they're your pretty stereotypical warrior race they're just kind of bad, out to conquer stuff all the time. And the fact that the scrolls were very different in this film irked a lot of comic fans. Personally, I'm okay with it. I found kind of the plot twist later on that Talos and his people are actually refugees and they're not actually trying to conquer the Kree. They're being subjugated by them. I thought it was a very clever plot twist. I personally think that maybe Talos's group is a good offshoot of the Skrulls. Maybe the Skrulls in general really are like they are in the comics and they're just they're just bad and maybe Talos's group is just kind of a more enlightened offshoot of them. I don't know. That's just my own little personal theory. Though when I when I did think about it, the change in behavior did seem a little abrupt to me. It's like Talos and the Skrulls, they seem pretty hardcore bad through the first part of the movie and then 
as soon as Carol is kind of revealed to them and they realize who she is and they realize she can help them, they get kind of nice. And that change did seem a little abrupt to me. I don't know if that was the director's choice or if it was written that way. It's not a huge thing for me, but it was something I noticed. Maybe it seems abrupt because up until that point where you actually get to engage with any of the scroll characters, you're seeing them through the eyes of the Kree who've decided that they're bad, you know, that they're awful. And in this movie, and I think probably the other times that I've watched it, I was super interested in the othering of the scrolls. In particular, because I think superhero content, you know, like X-Men, Marvel, like DC Comics, like any of that kind of stuff is always going to be a sort of commentary on the current social climate. And so the fact that they were perceived as this sort of amorphous, villainous blob was super interesting to me because even the Kree, well, for the most part, most of them are blue, you know, and so they have a sort of shared visual component. You know, some are blue, some are black, some look like humans, like Yonrog and Carol, but they're all still Kree and they're all still there in this sort of all-for-one, one-for-all mentality. But the scroll all look alike, and you don't really get to know any of them until you meet Talos. And like I said, they're presumed to be this thoughtless, violent mass, but once you meet them, clearly they're more complex and more interesting as a society, and they're willing to be helpful to people who are not to harm them. Because like you said, Talos even says that they were refugees and they needed help, but they became villainized because of it. And mm -hmm. as a movie that came out in 2019, where else have we heard that before? Yeah. You know? <laughs> art, so, art imitating life. They've been, they've been otherized, like you say. The Kree have just sort of said they're bad, and people have taken that at face value and carol and nick are able to see the truth other than that like more serious commentary on that they're ridiculous and i love them <laughs> they're so funny they just add another element of ridiculousness to this movie like a good level of humor because all the human jokes are lost on them half the time it's someone sort of making a joke on their behalf but it's not a deprecating joke in any way <laughs> like in the scene where they're at lawson's base and the the scroll kid is really excited about his score on the arcade game. The Space Invaders pinball yeah, game, and yeah. And Fury is like, well, if I'd been stuck here for six years, I'd have a high score too. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I know they were not portrayed like that in the comics, but it's two different media, and you don't want to be chained or anchored by your source material. You have to have some artistic license to do what furthers your story. And I think the scrolls, for some reason, it works. I think I think Ben Mendelsohn has a lot to do with that. I think he's a great kind of instrument for that. I personally think that they're setting up something really big with the Skrulls later on in the MCU, uh, especially after that big reveal in the post-credits scene of Spider-Man Far From Home. There are, in fact, there are actually some rumors that have been circulating about Captain Marvel 2 and how some are saying that it might follow the secret invasion storyline from the comics. It was a miniseries in which the Skrulls, maybe not extraordinarily long ago, but a little while ago, infiltrated Earth and replaced a lot of its superheroes. So I think that would be a really cool thing to see in Captain Marvel 2. I would agree. Once you know that there's a Skrull character in a movie, I immediately become suspicious of any because it's easy to become really paranoid, doesn't it? And not that they're going to do anything bad, but that because while they're good at taking on other people's mannerisms and behaviors, I'm out like I'm out for blood. I'm out for the hunt for anything mm. that's going to be different. As soon as we knew that scrolls were shapeshifters in this movie, I was looking for anything that was going to, you know, make somebody not be who they were. Like when Nick's boss calls him Nick after he's already said, like, nobody calls me that. They just call me Fury. Fury. 
I was like, oh, there he is. Keep an eye out. <laughs> okay. I think it's interesting because I think there's another theme at work here in this movie. It's the whole theme of appearances and deception and the idea that not everything or everyone is as it seems. And it's not just the Skrulls that are playing that out. It's the Kree, too. They clearly are not what we thought they were. They played themselves up as the victims in this war with the Skrulls and come to find out they're the ones doing all the oppressing. And they're the ones who lied to Carol about her abilities and tried to keep her chained up. They kidnapped her. They straight out kidnapped yeah. her and lied about it. You see that with Marvell. <laughs> you see it with Goose. You see it with Carol, too, in a more of a metaphorical sense. So I mentioned Carol being a part of this whole theme of appearances and things not being what they appear to be. I said Carol was sort of a reflection of that, too, in that we know she has these abilities at the beginning and through most of the movie, and then we ultimately find out that she can do a heck of a lot more once she's unchained because the Kree have basically had her operating with you know, almost literally one arm tied behind her back and come to find out she has these incredible powers. She, you know, is arguably the most powerful hero in the MCU. I've heard some people complain that, that she's too powerful and that her powers are not well-defined, you know. Oh, she can single-handedly destroy huge spaceships, but she still gets beaten around by the Star Force and Thanos and stuff like that. And, you know, a big deal. Superman is the same way, and I don't see people complaining about that. Well, in the comics they do, but not in the movie, so I got no problem with it. I got no problem with her being super awesome. Oh, no, I don't know. Having super awesome either. powers. I mean, superhero Jeez. movies... It's, it's Captain Marvel. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about superhero movies, these are people with powers that don't exist. So they're allowed to be awkward and unrefined and spectacular and ridiculous all at once. You know, and there's plenty of situations of, like, Mary Sue slash Gary Stew type character writing, and I don't think that lessens the movie at all. And there are yep. particular circumstances where her powers, she isn't that strong because other people have, like you said, placed constraints on her powers. Yeah. I mean, for most of the movie, we find out they had these basically locks on her so that she couldn't use her full abilities. That certainly explains why she is the way she is in the movie. Of course, we can't talk about Carol Danvers without talking about Brie Larson herself. I think she's really good for the role. She's got just that right amount of grit and moxie and toughness and capability and sarcasm and vulnerability that kind of make her the complete character a well-rounded character i mean i bought her i bought her as carol danvers very easily especially when monica helps change her into her proper captain marvel colors before heading out into space the comic book geek in me got a nice little thrill from that because it's like i see those colors and it's like that's that's carol danvers that's captain marvel and she's gonna come out and she's gonna kick some butt and it's gonna That'd be really cool. I was honestly a little apprehensive about Brie Larson in this movie at first. I know now, much delayed, that she was in Scott Pilgrim, but I know her from a lot of wildly different movies. Like, the movies that I've seen her in are, like, Short Term 12 and Room and The Glass Castle. You know, those movies are nothing like Marvel. But the fact that she was able to be so believable, first as an alien who wasn't really an alien, and second as a human who thought she was an alien, and third as a superhero was really impressive to me. That goes back to her ability to be in all of these different types of roles, like be in Scott Pilgrim, but also be in Short Term 12 or Room. And I think a lot of that has to do with her ability to create really good chemistry in those movies. Like in the movies that I knew her from, she had great chemistry with the other actors in the film and you can see that here too 
And so I think also that chemistry makes it more believable. Oh, I agree with you totally. I mean, the chemistry she has with Samuel L. Jackson alone, that's a big plus for this movie. That's one of the most attractive things about the movie. They get along so well. They work so well together. The on-screen chemistry is great. Apparently, just judging from all the stuff they did in the press junkets beforehand, hanging out with each other and doing interviews, they had a lot of off-screen chemistry, too. I mean, they're like buds. You really see that, and it comes across in the film really well, I think. And one of the quotes that I did include, that I will definitely paraphrase because this isn't exactly what happened in the movie, that whole scene after she's crash-landed in the block Buster, and she scared the security guard and it's morning now and Fury comes up to her while she's trying to talk to the Kree and he says witnesses say she was dressed for laser tag and you can <laughs> see it on her face they're like oh wow that's so interesting uh, well you know I never I would who even knows <laughs> when she's still dressed the way she was dressed and you can see that there's something more than just the two of them saying their lines. You can see that they're actually those characters in that scene. And you can see, too, from that, because I think you can see the wheels turning in his mind, that if they were just acting, you wouldn't be able to notice it. But you can see where he's thinking, okay, maybe she's right. You know, maybe this, maybe, okay, all right, I guess I'm listening a little bit. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons why they have such a good rapport as characters is how she's not really allowed to be humorous with the Kree. We know that from the first skirmish scene with her and Yonrog. You have to always be serious, but Fury immediately allows her to have that humor that so clearly is really natural to her. Because that's natural to him, too. That's yeah. how he is. <laughs> that's how he is, too. I like how you discuss how Fury is kind of skeptical about all this until he gets to know Carol, and I think that's really important because you get the sense, especially later on, the post credit scene with the pager and all that, and her showing up at Avengers headquarters, and she's like, where's Fury? And you get the feeling that the bond between these two, even though up to this point we know nothing, we knew nothing of it, is really tight. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I think hearing it from anyone else, Fury wouldn't buy any of the stuff about alien invaders and them having some civil war and shapeshifters and all of that. But it's it's his relation with Carol that allows him to get that, that allows him to understand, okay, this is what's really going on. There's a comfort level that the two of them have. And I mean, you see the origins of that you know, in the bar. That conversation is just so, it's very real. You know, the whole, it toast is cut diagonally, I can't eat it. What was that? That was a photon bless. Skrulls can't do that. I mean, that's like a conversation you and I have had. Yeah. Like, <laughs> hundreds of times over the last three years. It was very real. And I just, this just felt very natural and I think that's why I really like that relationship a lot the scrolls again I gotta I gotta come back to the scrolls you know and I had mentioned that the tonal shift was a little jarring at first, but I tell you, I still love the funny stuff that they say, especially when it comes out of Ben Mendelsohn's mouth. I think he's a riot, and this is one of the reasons why I really want to see that Mississippi Grind movie with him and Ryan Reynolds so badly, because uh, I want to see as much of him as I can. He just cracks me up. The whole thing in the Rambo house, when they realize that Marvel's base was in orbit of the planet, not on it, and is that so difficult to figure out? I mean, you're my science guy, right? I I saw that movie in the theater like two or three times. Every time he says that, I just lose it. He's like this shape-shifting lizard-looking alien, and he's talking to this guy like they're at the office. Yeah. Like, whoa, you know, that's what's so funny about it. Well, even in Lawson's ship, they were all dressed in like normal human like office attire. Nice yeah. button-up shirts and slacks <laughs> and stuff like that. So they're all, I mean, they're just like, a, again, another level of funny chemistry 
within the movie that even though Carol is, I think she takes to Fury more than she takes to the scroll, I think because of her time with the Kree, obviously. But even with them, like she has a good rapport. She has good comedic interactions with them and then good serious interactions with them too, the way she has with everybody else that's a major player in the movie. I think a lot of that is born out of, I was going to say guilt, but I think it's more just an understanding that, wow, I was playing for the wrong side. Mm -hmm. And I think she wants to correct that oversight. And I think her her bond with Talos and the Skrulls kind of results from that. It shows her earnestness. She picked the wrong side. She feels bad about it. And she wants to do what she can to rectify that. Who else can we talk about? We Oh, I mentioned the Rambeau house. But Lashana Lynch as Maria Rambeau. I, I mean, this is an honest portrayal of someone who's lost her best friend. She's grieved for her because she thought she was dead. And now discovering that this friend has been alive for the last six years, almost magically come back from the dead. I really liked watching that unfold. Kind of like, well, where the heck have you been? Yeah, and I like, too, that to this character, like, Maria Rambeau has this sort of long-suffering, no-nonsense feel to her. And it might just be because we just watched Captain America, but her relationship with Carol kind of reminds me a lot of Steve and Bucky. When Steve is, when he's little and he's running around the streets, getting in fights with guys in the, you know, in the alley behind a movie theater, or running crazy Howling Commando missions, Bucky's like, okay, might as well. And Marie and... Carol sort of give off a similar vibe, where at first Marie's like, oh, you know, I have to stay back and watch my kid. I can't really go on this crazy mission into outer space with you. But <laughs> once she gets prodded enough and, you know, sort of pokes her in that spot of this is your best friend, you have to support your best friend, she goes, okay, you know, all right. Well, and... remember, she, she was both literally and figuratively her wingman. Yeah. That she's, she was used to doing that. She was, she was always sticking with her and sort of another similarity too is people were constantly telling carol like we see all of that in the flashbacks and things like that people were constantly telling carol that she's too weak she can't do it and the only other person to sort of believe in her before we get to fury and all these other people was marie mm -hmm. and it turns out she's one of the most powerful beings in the universe yeah. Yeah. you know who does that remind you of <laughs> what story arc does that remind you of <laughs> It always comes back to the first Avenger. It does. And his buddy. One of the other people who clearly had a lot of faith in Carol was Wendy Lawson, a.k.a. Marvell, played by Annette Benning, veteran actor who's been around for quite some time. And Marvel has got this great way of bringing in veteran actors to their productions and and that Benning no different she doesn't have a whole lot to do but like I said she's a fitter she does her job really well and she makes it look effortless and I think there's a lot to be said for that that's all experience so yeah I really enjoyed her in this movie even though she didn't have a ton to do well and even though she didn't have a ton to do she was still vitally important we learn a lot about the universe because of the things that her character does whether on or off screen while we're on the subject of characters that did didn't have huge parts in the movie, but were still important. I guess we can't go any further without talking about Jude Law as Jan Rog. Like I said, I don't think it's a tremendous part. That's obviously a very important part. He's one of the big foils in the movie, but he does a he does a good job. He's he's sufficiently smug and jerky. <laughs> and I know technically 
Captain Marvel and other MCU movies wouldn't be considered sci-fi, although this has aliens and other planets in it, so I think that it fits, but whatever, I'm not gonna fight with the sci-fi crowd about this. But my favorite movies with Jude Law have always been sort of sci-fi-esque, like on the verge of super weird. But I think the first time I saw him, he was Gigolo Joe. In AI. AI, oh, that's right, yes. Kind and, of forgot about that. Uh, mm -hmm. Repo Man, yep. which is more of a weird, like, dystopian, but still futuristic world. He was in Repo Man? Yeah, he was in Repo was Man. A long time ago. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what I'm getting at with Jude Law is that he doesn't belong in a normal movie backdrop. <laughs> so I think he does well in this movie because it is also not a normal movie backdrop. Like, most movies are not about a human who gets kidnapped by an alien race and convinced that she's part of that alien race. And so I think his proclivity to be weird, like his natural weirdness, comes out in these types of roles, and he's much better for it than being in a traditional movie where he's expected to act natural. I think the only quote-unquote normal movie that I've seen him in was Stalingrad. It was a war movie. That was probably the most conventional thing I've ever seen him in. But yeah, if you ever get a chance, you know, since we're on the topic of Jude Law in not normal movies, you should rent Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Not necessarily because it's a good movie. I don't think it is, but it's got Jude Law and it's not normal. So just so you can say you saw it and experience it. Yeah, he's just a weirdo. And I think he did it well <laughs> because I think you sort of get a little bit of the vibe that maybe other people don't feel so good about Jan Rock like within the Cree, maybe it's because he is more of like taking on a leadership role or you know whatever it is i think he gives off a sufficient skeezy vibe because sort of from the beginning i didn't really trust him you know mm -hmm. i didn't really trust yonrog as a character right because he was constantly playing up this i'm gonna put really heavy air quotes around this good guy uh -huh vibe where everything that he says to carol when she's veers and then to carol when she's carol is this like oh i'm so proud of you oh if only you did it this way you could be so great i want you to be the best version of you you can be yeah it's kind of dripping with yeah you know, platitudes to like the point fake that it's, encouragement yeah to the point that it's like unbelievable and what he wants mm -hmm. is for her to be successful to better himself to sort of prove that what he's done has worked mm -hmm. not right. because he wants her to actually be successful because if he wanted her to be successful he wouldn't have put those chains on her to block her powers mm -hmm. and he i mean he wouldn't have kidnapped her in the first place so there's that but <laughs> i think jude law does a really good job of conveying all of those second tier like underlying emotions and behaviors and reasonings behind yon rock's actions you talk about sort of even other Kree perhaps distrusting him. It makes me think clearly he and Ronan kind of bump heads a few times in this movie. And it's not like Ronan is necessarily a nice guy himself. Clearly not. But I think he's much more, he's he's clearly hardcore military. Whereas yon Rog is kind of special forces covert, going back to the whole theme of appearances again. I think it's his job to kind of be sneaky and stealthy and lie when he has to. Whereas Ronan is just the accusers. We're here to just bomb the heck out of stuff. It's just sort of that brutal honesty and I think I get the feeling that Yon-Rog kind of grates on him because he's so disingenuous. 
Ronan may be kind of evil, but at least he's sort of a brutally honest sort of evil. Hi, I'm here, and I'm going to blow up your planet. Lawful yeah. evil. <laughs> Lawful evil, yeah. Yeah. There's a Rambo we haven't talked about yet. That would be young Monica Rambo. And I know that piqued the attention of a lot of comics fans out there, because those of you who follow Marvel Comics, you know who Monica Rambo is. The adult version of Monica Rambo is a superhero in her own right in the Marvel Comics universe and she's had she's had a lot of different superhero names including at one time captain marvel in the mid 80s she was captain marvel she had that moniker she currently goes by photon i think we have been told that she will be the adult version of monica rambo will be in the wandavision series on disney plus if we ever actually get to see it so that'll be really neat i think that would be good i'm glad that she gets like, that character gets to have more exploration. Because she was clearly really impactful on Carol, given that they knew each other before she disappeared and then knew her after and got to sort of experience that relationship getting rekindled. So I'm interested to see an older Monica Rambo for sure. Do we know if Maria and Monica were snapped? I feel like I there's so know. many people we don't know about. I bet you someone out there has done a frame-by-frame -frame analysis on, like, Endgame or the, the post-credits scene from this movie where they're showing all the, the names of all the snapped people in Avengers headquarters. I'm sure if they're there, I'm sure someone has noticed it, but I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe someone Monica can will, tell us. Maybe, some, maybe we'll find out in WandaVision. Who knows? We haven't talked about young Agent Phil Coulson yet. I liked him. I know that you didn't really buy it, from my understanding. I didn't buy the de-aging job they did on him. Like, the, the way they made Nick Fury look young, I thought was really convincing. I did not like what they did with Clark Gregg. I think he just looks like he's got, like, a bad toupee on. Um, but did you buy, like, the characterization? Oh, yeah. I've always I've always loved Phil Coulson. He's a great character in the MCU, so I had no problem with the character. He just kind of had that wonderful sort of very young but oh sir i'm i'm still the blockbuster <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's had that the kind of guy who will make a rookie mistake because he was a rookie no i love that i just didn't wow. like the i just didn't like the de-aging job they did okay goose i guess we gotta talk about goose i'm i don't know how goose became the star of this movie in a lot of ways you see memes about goose and maybe it's not maybe it's because i'm not a cat person Maybe I just don't. Maybe I just don't understand. But I know Goose is extraordinarily popular. I just don't get that. But I mean, you're a cat owner. You're a cat person. Did Goose actually resonate with you? I think so. I mean, I know that he's supposed to be a flirkin or whatever. That was said with the biggest eye roll. But <laughs> he is a very believable cat. I mean, there are some fun, adventurous cats that like to get in the car with you and go off. And I can imagine a cat getting on the spaceship and being oh, okay. I'm into it. <laughs> I'll stick around. This cat the, floating around in zero G. I did think yeah. that image was kind of funny. Goose just kind of floating around yeah. until the gravity kicked in. Well, here, topic of conversation among fans when this movie opened up. We remember in Winter Soldier how Fury said, last time I trusted someone, I lost an eye. Apparently, Goose was responsible for that eye loss. How do you weigh in on that? Well, that's funny because he keeps Goose after that. Goose still sticks around. After that, even though he says that last time I trusted someone, I lost an eye. But maybe it's not as negative a connotation as he put on it. Because I think it's more so that he trusted Carol. Not so much that he trusted Goose, but it's more so that he trusted Carol. Okay. I think Carol is, storyline-wise, really is the last person that he trusted. Because he doesn't trust Tony. 
That's for sure. He doesn't trust Bruce. You can't trust Clint or Natasha because they're also spies. Right. He sort of trusts Cap. Sort of, yeah. And I think he tolerates Thor because I think he still sees Thor as kind of a dumb brute. And he's an alien. And he's an alien. And so there's certain, you know, a fear of the other still ingrained in him. So I think it's more that it was his trust in Carol that had him lose the eye. But on the topic of Goose scratching his eye out, the actual act, I thought it was really interesting that they get in that car accident while they're chasing Carol and the scroll. You almost think that that's going to be the scene where he loses the eye because his eye is really red and it's all cut up from the car crash. Yeah, he gets hurt. He hurts the eye. And so you think, oh, maybe that's it, but then it's actually Goose. And as a person who has been a cat owner for the entirety of my life, (laughs) I got scratched by a cat maybe 15 years ago now, and I still have a pretty noticeable scar. So the fact that Goose, despite his flirkin-ness, (laughs) took the eye i definitely believe it like that's definitely a believable situation where that could happen i can totally imagine it it's totally believable to me even outside the alienness of the situation so if penny scratched your eye out you'd still be cool right oh i'd still be cool i'm cool with the cat that well the cat that scratched me is long gone but it was it was fair i would say i was being a lot as is typical of me you being a lot So as you know, Captain Marvel is the second film that we're reviewing in this podcast, despite the fact that it was released just last year. But it takes place in the 1990s, 1995 specifically. And as such, it puts it chronologically between Captain America, the first Avenger, and the first Iron Man film. That's why we're doing it. I'm 47 years old. I graduated from college in 1995. So I remember that time period pretty well, and the 90s references were really fun. It's a time period that's, you know, it's just now becoming, I guess, old enough that you can be nostalgic about it. You probably saw me tweet the other day how you know you're getting old when Stone Temple Pilots is being played on classic rock stations. That's kind of how I feel about the 90s now. It's just coming into its own as a a time period to be nostalgic about. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, you have no idea when it takes place if you haven't been reading about it or anything. But the moment you see her crash into that store and you see that blockbuster video sign, you know exactly when this movie takes place. And I just thought of the 90s references were cool. You mentioned the watching the black box recording upload really slowly. I remember the dial-up days. (laughs) I remember the dial-up days very well. My Um, grandma still had dial-up until I was in college. That's pretty recent. I'm about six years removed from undergrad, so I I remember dial-up fondly, but also very recently. Fondly and not fondly all at the same time, because it was so abysmally slow. Correct. That... that... Uh Uh-huh, I know all of those sounds. The 90s was... Not my favorite decade for music, but since I went to college in the 90s, it was kind of hard to ignore. And I liked a lot of the music of the 90s. I thought it was really neat to hear all that in the soundtrack. Especially, you had a lot of acts fronted by women in the soundtrack. You know, Elastica, No Doubt, and you know, the salt and Pepper and Vogue, you know, What a Man, and Garbage, and TLC. And then to round it out, of course, you had some Nirvana. You can't have a soundtrack for a movie taking place in the first half of the 1990s without Nirvana. So it was kind of nice to hear Come As You Are. Well, she's and wearing a Nine Inch Nails shirt. She's wearing a Nine Inch Nails shirt. she's with Fury after she yeah. gets out of her laser tag costume, mm-hmm. as he calls it. So 
I remember, like, I made a mix of all the songs played in the movie. <laughs> I owed most of them already. This is also an inside joke, but when the scroller looking into her memories and she's sort of going through her mental Rolodex that's been hidden from her for so long, in one of the, actually multiple of the flashbacks, specifically set at Poncho's with Maria, she's wearing a Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction t-shirt. And Which you know you how own, I feel about that. I, yeah, I did own one of those. I was a big Guns N' Roses fan when I was a kid. Emily and I have very, how shall we say, diverging tastes in music. And I'm a product of the 80s. I was big on a lot of the rock at the time, especially a lot of the hair metal bands and stuff like that. Emily, not so much, but she's always told me, yeah, yeah I did like Guns N' Roses. And coming to find out, Guns N' Roses is actually one of the bands of that period that I'm not really big on. We get into that discussion a lot about Guns N' Roses. Which Carol was also wearing a heart t-shirt at one point, which I'm a big heart fan, so it's kind of nice to see that. Even Evens though they're out. not, <laughs> even though they're not, even though they're 70s, but you do hear them play uh, crazy, crazy on you. Yeah, they're playing crazy on you very briefly at the bar, so that was kind of cool to hear. Another setting, obviously, that we should talk about too is sort of the the Cree planet, and I know, of course, that it's all CGI, but I love the way that Marvel creates these sort of huge intimidating structures in certain worlds like when she goes to see the supreme intelligence at the beginning of the movie that building which you know frankly it could be called like a castle <laughs> is massive and it makes me think of asgard first of all and then it also makes me think of the mountain in black panther yeah i was about to say that like the arena in black panther i mean that's 80 percent cgi and it looks magnificent the first thing you kind of think of when you see Black Panther is you think this can't be Earth. Like this can't possibly be Earth. They're too far advanced for this to be Earth. And you see that in all of the really advanced cultures. So with the Kree, with the Asgardians, with Wakandans, they have these massive, huge, intimidating structures that just totally dwarf everything in their mm -hmm. path. And so that's another thing that I really like about this movie, that it is very different, sort of in its setup from a lot of other Marvel movies, and like other origin stories in the Marvel Universe, backtracking from her origin to where she is, and that it's directed by a female, and that it's female-fronted, all those things are different, but that awe for these other interesting civilizations is clearly noticeable in the way that they created it. Yeah, like the beginning of the movie, it starts off, you know, with her just sort of waking up, you start in this very small confined space it's just her and her apartment and then she goes to see Yanrog and then next thing you know they're out and about and you just see just you know those skyscrapers and that big cityscape and it's it looks really cool marvel is very very good at world building not only in terms of societies and how different groups of people play out but just the way stuff looks sometimes they borrow heavily from the comics sometimes they go out on their own a little bit sometimes they do a little bit of both this film is no different this podcast would not be complete without us mentioning that it was the first mcu film to be released after the death of stan lee the fall of 2018 the all stan marvel studios fanfare at the beginning was quite special i very much enjoyed that because it's stan it's stan lee you don't have a lot of this stuff without him him and jack kirby who doesn't get nearly enough credit and, I like and his, his cameo. cameo yeah <laughs> reading his mall rats script which was maybe a bit of an anachronism because i think mall rats actually came out in 1995 
five. Well, and I like, too, that that bit on the train, like, his cameo in particular, you know, she's on the lookout for a scroll, and she still thinks that they're the bad guys, and for a second, you think that she might kick Flip Stan into oblivion, and instead <laughs> she smiles at him. It just, you know, I don't know if I was in a particular headspace when I watched the movie for the podcast, but it just melted my little cold heart. <laughs> I thought it was so sweet, because she clearly was untrusting of everybody else on that train, but she trusted Stan. But she trusted Stan. <laughs> that was that was really cute. I liked it. I'll admit it. We haven't talked about the rest of Star Force very much. I don't know if there's a whole lot to say. It was cool to see Jaiman Honsu back as Korath, reprising his role from Guardians of the Galaxy. I think they they made Star Force, you know, for better or worse, pretty pretty disposable in this movie. There was only so much room for so much in this one. We all know I'm real big on film scores. This was the first MCU film to be scored by a woman, composer Pinar Toprak. I really like her score a lot. I love how she changes the tone of her music depending on what kind of scene it's taking place in. The stuff on Hala and in space, it sounds very futuristic, with lots of electronic elements, and we talked about those scenes on Hala where you see the big cityscapes. You can hear the keyboard parts and it sounds really futuristic, but then the stuff on Earth is much more orchestral, much more Earth-based. Like the, the music of the car chase with Nick Fury, it's got that 80s, 90s action movie feel to it, kind of like a Cayman sort of score, or like something out of Die Hard or Lethal Weapon. Of course, at the very end of the movie, when Fury comes up with the name of this team that he needs to put together of superpowered beings, we get to hear that, uh, even though this wasn't Pinar Toprak, we get to hear that awesome Alan Silvestri Avengers theme again, which is really cool. On the topic of Avengers, then, to sort of lead into this, I think it is a good idea to watch the movies the way that we're watching them, because I think, you know, we don't obviously get hardly anything about Fury in the first Captain America movie, but you know that he's present and you know that he is at that time after you watch captain marvel you know that by the time steve gets woken up he's thinking about this avengers initiative and i think that sort of sets the stage for all the other origin movies coming forward although i guess with iron man it's technically the second iron man movie that you really think about it but talking about the avengers initiative could also get us talking a little bit more about the tesseract which of yes. course plays a huge role in this movie the one element in this movie that genuinely surprised me when i saw it I was not prepared to see the Tesseract in this movie. It kind of leads to some interesting continuity questions. At this point, if we're going strictly in chronological order, the last time we saw the Tesseract was when Howard Stark fished it out of the ocean in the end of Captain America the First Avenger, right? Well, and so... Because, agree, like, I have so many questions about the Tesseract and how it happened, because... So Howard would have fished it out of the ocean in the... 60s, 70s? No, I think... Or later. I think he, I, I think he fished... That, that scene in the end of First Avenger was... I think right it after? was right after Steve Crash, so okay. still like the end of the Second World War. So and he dug know, it out. We see it in Endgame. Right, when they go back to the 70s. When they yeah, go back know, to the 70s, so that's what I was thinking. I mean, Howard Stark still has it at that point. So and so since, at some point... In 25 years... Lawson stole it borrowed it, got Otherwise it, appropriated it, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise acquired it through various means. I'm not sure if we're ever going to find out how she got it. But then so. Fury obviously has it because Goose. And then at the beginning of the first Avengers movie, that's confusing. The beginning of the Avengers, the movie, he tells Steve Stark fished that out of, out of the water when he was looking for you and leaves out a bunch of information about Captain Marvel. As as is Nick Fury's want. Yeah. <laughs> That's his M.O. So I wonder then, 
if this happened in 95 and he had the Tesseract until 2012, besides what we know at the beginning of the Avengers movie, what was he doing with it since then? Very good question. Maybe we'll get the answer to that in one of the Disney Plus shows. I don't know why. I just have the feeling they're not going to come back to that in any of the future films. But it is a large chunk of the chronology that we don't know about. About what was going on in between the Avengers 19- Initiative Phase 1 start in 1995 to Phase 2 we're making Alien Tech. Well, it is interesting. I've always wondered if there was a connection between the Tesseract and Stark Tech. Because if you notice in as far back as the first Iron Man movie, every time Tony is going to fire like one of the repulsors on his suit, it makes that kind of whiny startup. Yeah, it does. Kind of noise. And then in Captain America, the first Avenger, when Red Skull has got all his Hydra weapons. They all sound like that, too. They make the same noise. kind of noise while they're warming up and i've always wondered hmm, what was howard's just like you said before what was howard stark doing with the tesseract all this time he had it and is it a coincidence yeah, that his kid's stuff sounds just like it what was he doing and then what was lawson doing and then what was fury doing mm-hmm. <laughs> like all of these people with sort of ulterior motives that probably had you know good intentions like i i do believe that fury had good intentions when he started the adventures initiative but now there's something about the tesseract that just, gets you you know just, yeah <laughs> It's the first Infinity Stone we see, and yeah, it always seems to lead to trouble. We saw that in Endgame. You know, Loki gets his hands on it. Now he's running around as a version of Loki, running around time, because he got his hands on the Tesseract. Who knows? Maybe they'll do a S.H.I.E.L.D., the Lost Years Disney Plus show. (laughs) I could use that. Which I could totally watch. We need, like, Samuel L. Jackson, Clark Gregg as Coulson, and, of course, Haley Atwell as Peggy Carter. Marvel producers, if you're listening... I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, if you wanted another million dollar, billion dollar, whatever monetary value you're looking for, you could make it with that. And we don't even need to take credit for it. I mean, it would be nice, but... <laughs> but you can have it. But you could, we can have it. We're going we're gonna to yeah. give you that one. We'll out of the goodness of our idea. hearts. Yep. So there we go. That's our review of Captain Marvel. Did you have anything else to add, Emily? I think we're good. All right. Well, to all the listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will be coming back to you in a few weeks with the original Iron Man from 2008 with Robert Downey Jr. So I thought Incredible Hulk came before Iron Man, or are we not doing that one? But we're definitely doing Incredible Hulk. Incredible Hulk came out actually like two months after Iron Man did. Oh, it also okay. came out in summer 2000. 2008. Did it uh, happen fact, chronologically after Iron Man? Do we know? It seems like it happened either concurrently or after Iron Man because right. there is a post credit sequence in the end of Incredible Hulk where Tony Stark goes to visit General Ross. Oh, and he okay. says, hey, I put a team together. Fair so it, they intimate that it takes place sometime after Iron Man. But until then, thanks for listening. Thank you, Emily. You're welcome, of course. Have a good night, everybody. Take care. We'll see you around. See you later.